Our scripture passage today is from Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Romans 6, 1 through 7, 11 through 23. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting in that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. I heard the collective groan at the end of that passage. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. Uh, Welcome to Church of the Redeemer. Uh, Fathers, happy Father's Day. Uh, This is not a Father's Day sermon, per se, uh, but I would tell you that I read a quote from a guy named Robert Coleman who Uh, said that Jesus' philosophy of ministry was not so much his interest in the crowds, but his desire to make men who the crowds would follow. And and from the very beginning of the Church of Redeemer, we understood that, that there's a sliding kind of male presence from the church in America, and that we're in a fatherlessness crisis in our nation, and really in... The Church of Jesus Christ as well, and so I am grateful for 
the men who lead this church and for their desire to raise up men uh, that that would be the kind of men that crowds of people would follow. And so that's what we're trying to do and continue to pray for us. And fathers, we're praying for you because we believe that you are ordained by God as the head of your household. And it is your responsibility to care for and provide for and to lead spiritually your wives and children. So know we're praying for you in that. Uh, and we are grateful for the day today to celebrate you and to uh, and to acknowledge that. Now, we're in a, the middle of a series on union with Christ. And so, again, like this is not a Father's Day sermon, but I'm going to try to make every application I can towards fatherhood. Okay, so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, this is a, a doctrine in Christian theology that we call union with Christ. A Christian is a person who is in Christ. And what we've been saying is kind of the practical basement level idea of what that means is what goes for him goes for me. So Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. So if by faith I am united to him, then God finds me in him. That is, I leave behind my record of sin and unrighteousness, and I gain his perfect record of obedience. His life is my righteousness. His righteousness becomes my righteousness by faith. What goes for him goes for me. That also means, we saw this last week, that as Jesus dies, we die with him. Galatians 2.20, I've been co-crucified with Christ, Paul says. So being in Christ means that you're united to him in his his death. You spiritually experience the death of Jesus in your flesh, and then you enter into uh, the narrative spirituality of his death. And by that I mean that his death for you becomes your life story. The cross begins to be the thing that explains all of your life. It becomes the narrative structure. It becomes the story of your life toward your loving of other people. So fathers, what that means is, is if you're a Christian father, if you're a Christian husband, men, as you shepherd your household, the the trajectory of your shepherding and the shape of your shepherding and the experience of your leading spiritually your wives and children means that you're going to have to live out the story of the cross continually for the sake of your wife and children. It's the narrative structure of your husbanding. The narrative structure of your fathering. And holy cow, I blew it this week. Because what it means is, is it means constantly you are presented with a choice. What you desire and what you want. You know, the Florida State baseball game on at 9 o'clock on Friday night. And what your children desire and need from you. And so I was able to go with what my child needed at the time, which meant I didn't get to watch the game that I wanted to watch, but I did it so poorly that I was grumpy for about the the next 36 hours. You see what I'm saying? And I failed to enter into the sense of Jesus' death for me. Now I get to go and joyfully die for my wife and children. This is the, this is the, the, just the rhythm and the pattern of your life. Okay, so what goes for him goes for me. He died, I died with him. I experience and I enter into his life, death, and resurrection in my loving of other people. Now, here in Romans 6, we're continuing on. So we've looked at Jesus' life, we've looked at his death, and then this morning we're going to look at his resurrection. We're going to see that his resurrection means newness for us because here Paul says in verse 5, if we've been united to him in his death... We are also united to him in his resurrection. So when Jesus came out of the grave, you see, we came out with him. That means that at the end of our lives, when death finally overtakes us, there's a resurrection waiting for us. But here's the thing, and I want you to make sure you see 
And you understand and comprehend this. Being united to Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, if you're a Christian, then his resurrection not only means that you will experience a future resurrection, it also means that you experience a resurrection right now. You see that? When you put your faith in Jesus, you come into him. And the part of you that was dead comes back to life. A new power enters into your life. Look specifically at verse 4. Paul says, he doesn't say Christ was raised from the dead so that we could be raised too at the end of time. He says, Christ was raised from the dead so that we could walk in newness of life. And so this is the resurrection, this present spiritual reality. If you're a Christian, if you're truly in Christ, then part of being in Christ is you begin to experience a newness of life. Your life begins to get renovated. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning from these verses. Now, a warning. This is dense. It took John Piper, who's a much better pastor and preacher than I am, 13 sermons to get through these verses. (laughs) Donald Barnhouse, who's a famous theologian and commentator, took him 19. The only option I have is to try to summarize the main parts of the text in one week. And pray and hope for a day when we can come back to put it into greater detail. So there's going to be a lot we leave out. There's no way possible we could get to every single little phrase of every single little sentence. I'm going for some big major themes. And to help us, here's what I want to do. There are three metaphors in this passage. And we're going to begin at the end of the passage and we're going to work our way back, basically, is what we're going to do. But there are three metaphors. And I just want to use those three metaphors to talk about what it means for us to be united to Christ in his resurrection. Okay? And the metaphors are just this. The metaphor fruit the metaphor of slavery, and the metaphor of resurrection. All three of those are here. So in the metaphor of fruit, we see why we need newness. Through the metaphor of slavery, we see what the newness is that God offers and provides for us. And then through the metaphor of resurrection, we, we get to see how it is that, that this newness works itself into our life. Okay, So those three things about this newness. Why we need it, what it is, and how we get it. So first, okay, this... This idea, why, why, what does this passage teach us about why we need newness? And the metaphor Paul uses to explain that is fruit. I mean, look down at the end of the passage there in verses 21 and 22, okay? That's where I want you to focus with me for a minute. Paul says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now shamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me sum up those two verses, those, those three verses there for you, uh, with a biblical principle. You reap what you sow. And that's a direct quote from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, and it's basically what Paul's saying here in Romans 6. He's contrasting the way the Roman Christians were living before they put their faith in Jesus with what's happened in their lives after they became Christians. And the metaphor he uses to make that contrast is fruit. And you know this, I mean, I don't need to explain the metaphor of fruit. You know how this works. If you want to grow a fruit tree in your yard, you go out, you put the seeds in the ground, you sow the seed, you water and you tend it, and eventually it produces fruit. But the kind of fruit you get depends upon the kind of sowing that you do. And so this is the, this gardening metaphor is what Paul's using here. And so he describes, he says, about their life before they became Christians. Verse 21, he says, you were slaves to sin. That is, they were, these Roman Christians were living only for themselves. Their whole orientation, their life orientation was me, 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 me. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. That everything's about you. Sin 
the Bible describes as a fundamental self-centeredness. It's a core dynamic of self-centeredness in your life. And so if you live your whole life thinking about yourself, always putting yourself ahead of others, always demanding that others meet your needs and not the other way around, always demanding you get your way, then the consequence, Paul says, the fruit will be what? He says very clear. Verse 21, the fruit of that way of living is death. Now, not death literally, but of course that. But he means death figurative. He means means destruction. Your life will just begin to unravel. It will fall apart. I mean, if you spend your whole life sowing seeds of selfishness, then you won't reap a life of love and joy and peace. You'll reap frustration because things will never go the way you want them to go. Anger at God and at other people. Relational conflict. All these things. I mean, this is one of our personal favorite parental scare tactics with our kids. If you, if you act like this, nobody's going to want to be your friend. I don't like you. Right? I mean, if you, all you ever do is think about you, you're going to die old, lonely, and by yourself. Because who wants to be with a person like that? Right? My kids... And then they go and act the same way they did before the lecture, so it didn't really work. But this is what Paul's saying. Paul says, okay, when, when you were living for yourself, he says to these people, what was the fruit you were getting? It was death. The consequence, the fruit of a life of sin and selfishness is death. Destruction, relational conflict, life falling apart. But, he goes on, verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's in eternal life. And so this is a completely different picture. See what he's doing? The consequence, the fruit of a life of sin and selfishness is death, but the consequence or the fruit of a life of obedience to God is sanctification. That is, as the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, right? That's what we mean by that word. You stop living for yourself. That's what the Spirit does in your life. The Spirit begins to work in your heart, love for other people and selflessness and humility and generosity towards others. And the result is sanctification. You become a person who doesn't think about himself so much. And then the consequence of sanctification, he says, is eternal life. You see that? But what we have to understand about what the Bible's teaching is, is when the Bible talks about eternal life, it doesn't just mean life after death. The adjective eternal there at the beginning of that word doesn't refer to the duration of the life as much as it is meant to refer to the quality of the life. So eternal life in the Bible, the life of the future, what the Bible teaches is it has been pushed back into the present, the present reality, and we can enter into it. We can have eternal life now. Eternal life begins now. It doesn't begin after you die when you go to heaven and float around on clouds with you know wings on your back playing a harpsichord. Eternal life is what you get now when you repent Put your faith in Jesus and and enter into a relationship with him. When Paul says, if if in your life you begin by the help of God's spirit to sow seeds, not of selfishness and sin, but of love and selflessness towards others, then you'll reap eternal life. You'll begin to experience a life of heaven, the life of heaven in the present, abundant, eternal, abundant life now. And so the summary is the consequence, the fruit of A life of sin and selfishness is death. You'll be miserable. Life won't work right. But the consequence or the fruit of a life of obedience and service to others is eternal life. And this is exactly 
what Leviticus 26 is talking about. And I don't know if you read Leviticus 26 in community Bible reading this past week. It's why I put it in the worship you know, folder as your call to worship this morning because it scared me to death. And in a parallel passage to Leviticus 26, you know, in Leviticus 26, God comes to the nation of Israel at the end of his giving the law, and he says, if you obey my words and you keep my commandments, then here are all the ways that it's going to go well for you. I'm going to bless you. I will turn my face towards you, that you'll get rain when you need it. Your crops will produce fruit abundantly. But if you reject me and if you disregard my commands, then I will turn my face away from you and, and all of these horrible things that will happen. And you get to the end, you think, oh, my goodness, it's just scary. And in a parallel passage in, in Deuteronomy 11, the Lord basically in doing the same thing says to the people, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord and the curse if you don't obey but turn aside from the way. And the Bible could not be more clear. If we pay attention to God's words and are careful to do them, if we keep his commandments, then the fruit is blessing. God will send the rain. He will turn to us and make us fruitful. He will walk among us and bless our lives. But if we disregard his commands and live according to our own desires, then the fruit is death and disaster. If we turn against him, he'll turn against us. Now, this is really hard for us to accept. Because we are a culture of people who are intolerant of authority. Freedom and self-expression are our ultimate values. And so we resent the idea that somebody else could tell us how we should live our lives. It is anti-American. So I have some work to do to help us see the reason why it works this way. I'm taking a lot of time on this first point because it's important. And C.S. Lewis has really helped me personally in helping to explain to me why it is that it works this way. And he says... That this idea in the Bible, the fruit of, you know, the, this, this fruit metaphor the Bible is working out here in Romans, there in Leviticus 26. He says it's not because God's cruel. It's not because God's on a power trip. It's because God's the creator. And because he's the creator, he's the great designer of the universe, then everything that he's made has a particular order and function. There's a design. I mean, it's inescapable. There's no way around it. God has created you and I. He's created everything that we, you know, see and everything that exists. And because he's created those things, he's created them. The only way the world works is for all of those things to kind of get put together like pieces of a puzzle. And so there's a design for everything in all of God's creation. And we can't ignore the design. And so fathers, to you this morning, there's very clear design for fatherhood in the life of children. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so the design of fatherhood in the life of children is just this. A father disciplines and instructs his children. Now, there are two ways that could go wrong, two mistakes. On the one hand, a father could refuse to instruct his children and to correct them when they do wrong things and to bring discipline. Okay? The second way it could go wrong is for there to be exasperation, for a father to be overly corrective for him to to do his correction in such a way that it disheartens his children and they they feel like they can't ever do enough to gain his approval and what the, what what I mean by there being a design if that is the if the design of fatherhood is godly discipline and instruction and the the, the errors of that are no instruction on this hand or improper instruction that leads to exasperation over here if you try to father apart from how God says it works it's going to blow up in your face 
right? If there's no, if you're too permissive, if there's no instruction, then your children won't learn obedience. But if you're too harsh, then you crush them. And so there's a, there's a, God made fathers. He invented fatherhood. He himself is the father. And so because he invented fatherhood, he also tells us in the scripture how it works. He's the creator, and it means all of life is under his authority. And if you try to do life apart from how he says it works, it'll blow up in your face. It's like taking water and putting it in the gasoline, you know, the, the gas tank of your car and trying to run your car on water instead of gas. What happens? I don't even know. But I can't imagine it's very good. Right? Doesn't work. There'll be a breakdown. The car will get from here down the road and it'll sputter and because it's not how a car wasn't designed to run on water. The car's designed to run on gas. And so C.S. Lewis, this is this is a lengthy quote. I know it's hard to follow, but you need to hear these words from C.S. Lewis because they're really helpful. C.S. Lewis says, The moment you have a self. There is a possibility of putting yourself first, of wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. And that was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could, quote-unquote, be like gods. They could set up their own as if they had created themselves. They could be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves apart from God, outside of God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call tragedy in human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. It is all the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And the reason why is this. He says, the reason why he can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. The car is made to run on petrol. That's gas for you Americans. It would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because there is none. There's no such thing. And so in giving us the scriptures, God is saying, you know, Leviticus 26 is not God saying, you better watch out or I'm going to get you. Leviticus 26 do this and you'll live. Do this and there's curse. Is God saying, I made you. I know how you work. Here is the way to life. And the human problem of sin is we do not possess hearts that are able and willing to obey. We need hearts that have been freed from their natural selfishness and self-concern that can obey God's laws. And so in Romans 6, Paul's writing about the solution to this problem. And the solution is the gospel of grace. But listen, let's be very, very careful. You know, the gospel of grace, I'm a sinner. And here, let me just sum this. I'm a sinner, but I'm not, you know, Leviticus 26 says, if you sin, there's a curse. The gospel of grace says, I'm a sinner, but I'm not cursed. Because Galatians 3 says, Jesus has taken my curse upon himself. Jesus was cursed, so that there's no curse for me. That's the gospel message. Jesus perfectly obeyed the commands of God, and yet he received all of the curses threatened in Leviticus 26. God turned away from him, literally on the cross, so that we who've rebelled and done nothing but ignore God's commands could receive all of the blessings of Leviticus 26. That's the gospel. We're saved by grace. That is, our sin does not merit us death because... The obedience of Jesus has merited us eternal life. Now, Paul's message here in Romans 6, though, we see we have to be careful. 
that if that is the gospel message of grace, then what Paul's being very careful to say here in Romans 6 is, is that gospel message doesn't then make obedience optional. That is, grace doesn't mean obedience becomes optional. This is what Paul's answering here in verses 1 and then verses 15. Do you see? What shall we say, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. And then down, where is it? Down in verse 15. What shall we say then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, does the gospel of grace make obedience optional? And Paul says, by no means, and it's actually much stronger than that, but I've, a new, my New Year's re- resolution is that I won't cuss from the pulpit. Or the mic, whatever this is, the music stand, not the pulpit. He's, this, is, this is very, very, very strong language. He's saying it can't mean that. It's impossible. The gospel of grace doesn't make obedience optional. What Paul wants to teach us is the gospel of grace is what makes obedience possible. Why? And his answer is union with Christ. So the first, the first um, and I know that was a long point, and the others will be shorter, but the first metaphor then he's working through with us is the metaphor fruit. So the gospel, the second one is the metaphor slavery then. So the gospel solution to the problem of our sin is not to make our obedience optional. The gospel solution to all we've been talking about so far is to make obedience possible because we're told here in Romans 6 that it is that God's work in our life goes beyond saving us from the penalty of sin. Jesus died on the cross in our place and we died with him, we saw last week, to satisfy the demands of God's justice so there's no curse. But the good news of the gospel doesn't end there because in Jesus Christ, God is not just working to forgive our sins. He's working to make us new. Are y'all awake? Thank you. You talk about, never mind, we won't go there. We talk about grace, you know, oh, grace, and we, oh, that's the, you start talking about obedience and people get nervous and squirm, you know, squirmy. See, the gospel doesn't make obedience optional. That's not the good news. The gospel makes obedience possible. And the metaphor Paul uses here is the metaphor of slavery. So, verse 17, we were slaves to sin, but now, verse 18, we are now slaves to righteousness, or in verse 23, we're slaves to God. And here's how this works, okay? We've been talking about union with Christ. So, Paul says... And you've got to go up to verses 3 through 4 to, to kind of get uh, what I, what, you know, the, the picture and the metaphor of how this all works. Paul says that being baptized into Christ, in other words, coming into Jesus, being united to him by faith, doesn't mean that, that, that the actual moment of, you know, this being baptized doesn't refer to the actual moment of baptism. It refers to the spiritual reality that baptism signifies, which is our being identified with or being united to Jesus by faith. So he says, when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. So Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and therefore, because we are united to him, we also experience a death and a resurrection in our being baptized into him. And this is what the church has historically called a conversion experience, a death and a resurrection. So one way of life ending and another beginning, and that's what baptism, the sacrament, signifies, which is why... Even in this church, when we baptize adults particularly, we baptize them into death, you know, down into the water, signifying their burial with Christ in his death, and they're being raised up out of death to walk in newness of life with Jesus. 
this conversion experience, that what it means for you to become a Christian is one way of life ends and another way of life begins. There's a new dynamic of the Spirit in your life. And so I just got to ask this morning, as your friend, have you experienced a conversion experience? Jesus was dead and was raised. Have you died and been raised? Because you see, the power of God, we're told, came into Jesus' deadness and brought him back to life. And in the same way, when you put your faith in him and are united to him, the same resurrection power of God comes into your spiritual deadness, and the result, verse 4, is newness of life. You see, that's what we've been trying to say for the last couple of weeks, isn't it? That union with Christ is something we experience subjectively. What goes for him goes for me. Christ died and was raised, and therefore I experience a death and a resurrection, but... Not just a physical resurrection to the end of my life, but a spiritual resurrection that brings into my body a new dynamic of the resurrection power of God coursing through my life. Verse 4. Now, present spiritual reality, this newness of life. And the word just means the sense of being renovated, the way that you would renovate or update a home. And if somebody would like to, if somebody has that spiritual gift, they can come to my house because I have a John Wood home that has not been updated since we're like living the 1970s swag at my place, right? Minus some carpet. But, you know, what you do with a house like that or what you're supposed to do is you put a fresh coat of paint on the walls, you put new carpet in, you replace the rotting wood, you change out some of the stained countertops, you replace the outdated appliances, and there are some in my neighborhood that are still that hideous, like, what do you even call it? Like, yellow, yeah. Or, or split pea soup, baby puke green. You know, and you take that stuff out, and you put in the nice new stuff, and you put the, you know, the, the nice countertops on. What are you doing? You're renovating, you're taking what was old and outdated and rotting and stained, and you're making it new. That's what Paul says the Spirit does in our lives. That's the metaphor. And the the extended metaphor he uses, I'm mixing my metaphors, but the extended metaphor he uses to explain this renovation project is slavery. He says, we were slaves to sin, Romans 6, 17. But now now we are slaves to righteousness. (laughs) And you know, I mean, we understand this too, right? A slave doesn't do his own will. He does what his master wants him to do. A slave is under the influence of... Uh, that, that secures his obedience to his master. So when Paul says we're slaves to sin, he means we were under the power and dominion of sin. He means, you know, we were powerless to resist the sinful impulses of our hearts. Sin was our master cracking the whip and demanding our obedience, right? We, the, the powerful cravings and desires of our lives, and we're just completely enslaved to them. By way of illustration, I continue to eat things that I know will kill me. Why? Because my body craves them. Right? I don't crave broccoli or asparagus or carrots. I crave cheeseburgers. I'm a slave to my desire for cheeseburgers. Right? But that's not the only illustration. You know, I'm a slave to uh, my desire to have the approval of other people. I have an unhealthy, sinful need to have other people approve of me that's just as deadly as cheeseburgers. Uh, So my whole life is driven by the desire to have people like me. I'm a slave to it. I'll lie to keep people happy with me. I'll overcommit uh, and drive my family into the ground to keep people happy with me. But but here's, see, what Paul's saying is just we're slaves to sin in this way, but God is remaking us. By the Spirit, he's renovating us. And and the result is that 
that according to Paul, we are no longer slaves to sin. Now all of this momentum in our lives towards sin, all of this slavish obedience to sin has turned and we are now slaves to righteousness. In other words, just as we were compelled to obey sin, so now because of the Spirit's work in us, we are compelled to obey God, to obey righteousness. And this is a dominant biblical metaphor. We are God's slaves. If your faith is in Christ, you're a Christian, you're God's slave. So the gospel doesn't free us from the obligation to obey God. A slave doesn't consider obedience to its master optional. The gospel makes obedience possible by giving us a new heart with new desires. And so I've been praying, and pray with me, that my desire for cheeseburgers would turn into desire for broccoli. But it hasn't happened yet. And it won't, probably. Thanks. Now I'm discouraged. But my slavish desire for the approval of others, I don't see it, but people in my life tell me that God's working. And so Paul says, see, there's a new new possibility. And he says it emphatically in verse 17. He says, thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I'm a pro. I'm an absolute pro. I can disciple you well at doing the right thing with a terrible attitude. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. Not following the rules for the sake of following the rules. Following the rules, but grumpy. Paul says doing the right thing because not doing the right thing because it's the right thing or because of fear of being punished. He says obedience from the heart. A heart. A heart that loves to be obedient. And this is exactly what the scripture promises in places like Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, where the prophet looks forward to the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he says, here's what's going to happen when God comes and brings his Spirit to come and live inside of you. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Listen, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, what Israel needed in Leviticus 26 and what we need is a heart motivated towards obedience, a heart healed of its selfishness and freed to love God and love others. And Paul says, when you put your faith in Jesus and you come into union with him, you experience a resurrection, and that's exactly what you get. You who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. So another diagnostic question for you. In Ephesians 6, 6, Paul says that we should obey God as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Are you a slave to Christ? Is 100% obedience to Jesus your goal? Or is the slogan of your life, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven? If I had hair on my head, I would pull it out. I hate that. I mean, it's such terrible theology. It's boasting in sin. Because Jesus said, be perfect, as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Are you a slave to Christ? You see, the metaphor of fruit shows us that we need a newness. And the metaphor of slavery shows us what that newness is we need. We need new hearts motivated towards obedience so that we might live as the slaves of God. And the passage that we're looking at here in Romans 6 is full of beautiful indicative statements. You've died to sin, Paul says. You no longer live as a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. So our union with with Jesus in his death and resurrection makes our obedience possible. But the indicative statements 
don't mean we don't have work to do. And so the last thing, and i got to do it real quick, is I want to talk about how then we begin to experience this news in, in our lives. You see, Romans 6 is also full of imperative statements, of commands. So he says, Paul says, you're dead to sin, indicative. But then he also says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, imperative. He says, you're no longer a slave to sin. That's an indicative statement. But he says, well, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. And there's all this language of don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. In other words, don't just give yourself over to sin's influence in your life. You've got to fight. You've got to present the, the members of your body as instruments to God for righteousness. And so you have to work these indicative statements down into your life through the imperatives, but how? And i got two things to finish with, just two practical points of application. And the first is just this, okay? So here's kind of the practical, ground level, how you begin to work these things out in your life. The first is you have to keep the indicatives and the imperatives in the right order. See, gospel Christianity means the indicatives always come first and then the imperatives and not the other way around. So I am not at all, when I, when I am calling for obedience, I'm not saying that your obedience merits your salvation with God. Justification always leads to sanctification. Sanctification does not lead to justification. Are you with me? You have to keep those two in order. So zoom in on Romans 6, 12 through 14. And Paul says there, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness for, he says, okay, follow the language. In other words, the reason why you're to not present your members as sin, to sin is for sin will have no dominion over you. In other words, sin's power is being progressively broken in your life, Paul says. But then follow along, since, and there in verse 14, the since there in verse 14 is the how. So don't present your members as, as, as instruments of unrighteousness. Because sin will have no dominion over you. But why does sin have no dominion over you? And here's the... Because you're not under law, but under grace. So what Paul's saying is, is sin loses its power when the framework for fighting against sin is salvation by grace. The thing that will take you out in your fight against sin more than anything else is guilt and shame. And so your performance, good or bad, can't be the barometer of your emotional life. If it is... When things start to go bad, when sin starts to have its way with you, you'll fall apart. You'll be so full of guilt and so full of shame, you'll want to quit. And so Paul says, you've got to keep these things in the right order. God's love and acceptance of you is not based upon your success in your fight against sin, but the strength and the vigor of your fight is based upon your heart being filled with confidence in his love for you. See? So if you keep the indicatives and the imperatives in the right order, you can be knowing and relying on the love of God for you, no matter how bad it might be at the moment. But then the second thing, second application. So keep the indicatives and the imperatives in the right order. The second thing is you've got to be sure of the outcome in the middle of the fight. You've got to be sure of how the battle's going to end when you're in the middle of the battle. See, there's a yes and a no, an already and a not yet component to each of these gospel truths here in Romans 6. In, in other places. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Are you there with him right now? Yes. You are. I'm looking at you. Yes and no. Right? The answer is yes and no. Are you dead to sin? Yes. But wait a minute. N- not really. Have you been raised with Christ? The answer is yes. But also, no. see, there's still there's still something coming. And so the verb tense so often here in Romans 6 is future. The indicatives that Paul's writing about are still coming, but they're also already here. But here 
is not the end of the story. And so whatever struggles with sin you're in the middle of, there's something coming that will put an end to all of it. And so sin, the sin in you and sin in general, whatever it might be, will soon be totally and once and for all defeated. So Paul says, don't lose heart. And the way you do battle is like this. When you're in a battle and you're convinced that your enemy is stronger than you, then what happens? If you're on a baseball team, kids, and the team you're facing has beaten you 15 out of 16 times by 10-run rule, what happens? Oh, we've got to play these guys again today. I just want to go home. You know, you lose, you lose heart. You, you, it's over before it begins, right? And so, so on the one hand, guilt and shame, but on the other hand, cynicism and discouragement will take you out of the game. You, you know, so you, you face an enemy that you know is greater than you. You say, oh, what good will it do anyway? And you give up. But when you're in a battle and you know you're stronger and better and you have resources your enemy doesn't, it makes you brave. It fills you with hope. That's the point of Paul's indicative statements. He's saying... He's saying, don't forget, as you battle with sin, don't forget who you already are and who you one day will be. What you have to do is you have to talk to your heart about these gospel truths in light of your present reality. When you don't feel dead to sin, when sin is just beating you to death and having its way with you, when you don't feel dead to it, you have to sit your heart down and you have to talk to it and you have to say, I'm dead to sin but alive to God. You know, when you're tempted to give in to cynicism and discouragement, you have to remember, I, by the Spirit, am a slave to righteousness. I have been raised up with Jesus into newness of life. And the key in both these things is union with Christ, see? The way to keep the indicatives and the imperatives in the right order is to remember that it is His work for you, not your work for Him, that really matters. Salvation is what God does for you in Jesus, not what you do for God. So all the spiritual blessings in your life are yours in Christ Jesus. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. But the reason you can be sure of the outcome in the middle of the fight is Jesus has already won. And you're in him. He died and was raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means that everything, Paul promises here in Romans 6, everything Leviticus 26 says that we need about a heart motivated towards obedience. Everything that Paul promises is true of us here has been secured, and it will be yours if you keep striving. And so let's pray that God, by the Spirit and by His grace, would help us to do just that. Heavenly Father, we pray that what would be said of us as a people, that what would be true of this church, what would be true of of me, And of Jonathan as the pastors of this church, what would be true of the elders and the deacons who lead this church, what would be true of all of those who are a part of this church, what would be true of the children of this church, is that we would never never boast in sin, but the goal of our lives would be 100% obedience all the time for your glory. And yet we realize how frail we are and how often we fail. And so we thank you for the good news of the gospel of grace, that salvation is ours, not because of anything we might do, but because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. But we also thank you for the promise of the gospel that Jesus died and was raised and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, that he might send the Spirit into our hearts to give us hearts and to motivate our hearts towards obedience. And so we look to Jesus and his work, and we rest in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, the vow that our, that our new friends said this morning. We, we look and rest in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit for you to come and work in our lives and that the result would be that we would be people 
the fruit of our lives would not be the fruit of destruction and despair and death, but the fruit of our lives would be sanctification and through sanctification, eternal life. That we might be rich in good works, that we might be light in darkness, a city set on a hill, full of beautiful deeds that the world that you have, that, that is around us and the city that you put us in would take notice of and, and glorify you for. That's our heart's desire. Would you come and do that work in us? Help us to cling to Jesus and help us to rest and rely upon the Holy Spirit. And would the result of that be a beautiful obedience in our lives? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, two things really quick before I close this. The first is pray for Jonathan and I. We leave this afternoon to go to Louisville, Kentucky uh, for our denominational meetings, uh, our national kind of conference. So be praying for the Presbyterian Church in America this week uh, as we meet together. The second thing is there are forms that those of you who are going to Nicaragua need to fill out. Uh, I've been, I'm under strict orders to tell you if you do not get those in in the next couple of days, you're not going. No Nicaragua for you, Okay. So get those things into Jonathan quickly. He needs those. Now, pastorally, let me, let me appeal to you. Do not use the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as an excuse for sin. Um, and and, and the real, as silly as the analogy is, the reality of my, my appetite and desire for cheeseburgers, you, you cannot and physiologically stop desiring one food and start desiring another unless you first begin the habit of eating good foods. And in the habit of eating good foods, your body begins to desire things that are good for it and not things that are bad for it. In the same way, whatever might be the point of your struggle with sin, the way that you find your desire taking off the appetite for sin and putting on an appetite for Christ is to feast upon the gospel. You have to begin to feast upon things that are nourishing to you, and the result is your body, your, your life catches up, and you begin to actually begin to desire those things. And so that's the promise of this benediction, and that's the point of it, is that as you go with the promise that there's newness of life available to you as you go, go feasting upon the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. So don't, don't use the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as an excuse for sin, but don't, don't leave here and try to go and live an obedient life apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit. And so receive the benediction then, as the hope that as you go, he goes with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.